lot of times in pop records, people will hear a solo. Right. Sometimes it's a sax solo. A lot of times it's you. Now, there's a specific attitude you have to bring to the spontaneous composition of a commercial eight-bar sax solo, and you are a master of it. And I know you also, of course, have done highly sophisticated, longer-form improvisations. But tell me <laughs> what's going on in your mind when you're thinking, I'm going to take the killer eight-bar commercial solo on this tune. Well, generally, I think what I'd like to do is have an initial idea, an initial melodic thought that I kind of know is going to work. And that really is kind of the igniting point for the rest of the solo. And usually, if you have that first thing, the adrenaline of performance kind of carries you through the rest of the other six bars, you know, so. Right. In terms of process, that is how I make it work. But um, as far as sort of establishing your own identity, in commercial work, you're really subservient to the needs of the client, you know, and what the mood of the track, you know, what, all kinds of stuff. Okay, let's... But, uh, yeah. but, but also, you know, I mean, I mean, part of the fun of it is you know, how much me can I get on the tape, you know, but without kind of overshadowing what the artist really needs. So. Okay. Well, now I'm going to ask you to just imagine there's some kind of a pounding <laughs> track, and it's one chord, A minor, and the producer says, okay, Chris, burn. <laughs> okay. What would you do? What would I do? Just whip I, it out. Well, <laughs> okay. Whip it out. Let's, let's see. Let's see what I got going here. A minor. <laughs> See, there you go. You started out with something provocative. You then went into something bluesy to get, get their attention. And, and then, then you end, ended with a nice some... squealy kind of climactic. Yeah, then you ended with something squealy and climactic. You know, there's, there's actually there's a TV show that, that runs every day at 9 a.m. sharp. And they use a solo of mine that I played, I don't know, about five years ago. And I, it was one of those things that came up. I, I kind of was sort of chuckling to myself, thinking, well, you know, I wonder if I can, wonder if they're going to use, you know, get this past them, you know. And it actually did work. That was one of those situations where it was just trying to be as extreme as possible, but also taking into account what, what the situation required. Okay, the situation was, uh, this, is a, this is probably the most popular morning show in the country, Regis and Kelly. And, um... You know, they were just doing this kind of driving rock backbeat, exactly as you just described, you know. And uh, they wanted this big opening thing. And I thought, okay, you know, I, I, got, I got an opening for you, you know. And so <laughs> I just kicked off on this, you know, hellishly glaring note. And, uh, and, they, and, and you know, they, they played every day, so I kind of... That felt like a major sort of strategic achievement, you know. Yeah. Most improvisers, you know, they're thinking art, they're thinking, uh, how can I establish my own personality? But if you're a commercial guy playing in the studios, right. you're listening to the uh, directions of some producer who may be brilliant or he may be an idiot. Right. But tell me how, maybe give me some anecdotes of some situations you've been in and how you've gotten through them. Well, you know, Michelle Camilo called me ages and ages ago, and... 
wanted me to play soprano or something. And, and soprano is an instrument I really hadn't spent a whole hell of a lot of time thinking about. And, you know, I played it on dates and it was working. But he just wanted some ethereal other sound that really I really hadn't gone into. And fortunately, there was a bit of time before we actually were going to record. And I started looking around for the different mouthpieces and just trying to think of how I could really translate what he was saying into some tangible new thing. And that really led to the whole development in my sort of musical life that, that, that has been hugely you know, useful. So It's just being sort of in tune to the environment and exactly what is needed is really a way to expand your own kind of vocabulary, you know, in your own palette of color. Can you give me some examples of maybe some some pop situations? I mean, I don't know if you play it in very many pop records today, but you certainly used to play in loads of them. Well, you know, in London, I was doing a lot of that in London, and most of the commercial things I've done in New York have been for, like, just commercial music, you know, like, as in network TV or or whatever. In London, there was just, there's a whole lot more pop stuff going on anyway, from the standpoint of horn overdubs. And, um... I think I was so young then that I was just happy to be making a living doing that and getting things on tape that actually worked. I mean, that was kind of, it was a whole new experience for me. So it's not like I really had any kind of agenda or anything like that. It was just, it was just, well, you know, I just wanted to survive till next month, you know. Yeah. But looking back, why do you think you got so many calls and other guys didn't? Well, you know, as a young player, I was really into the American musicians Sanborn Tom Scott Michael Brecker you know those guys who were who were doing a lot of work here and I just had managed to sort of coalesce a style on the instrument that that amalgamated a lot of those different elements and I mean I'm not sure if people really were even aware in London of the American players I I didn't get the impression that they were you know but I, I just think that their styles work so effectively that you know once you get up in front of a microphone you can't argue with that approach to a solo situation. Can you give a little example of the alto saxophone sound pre-Dave Sanborn and then the alto saxophone sound that Dave Sanborn made pretty commercially seriously acceptable? Well, let me see. Again, it's not just about the sound. It's also about the harmonic environment of the time. And... I think a lot of what influenced the sound of pre-fusion players was just that whole bebop environment. And that was really about the way that songwriters were writing, you know, and the way that jazz artists utilized popular songs in their improvisation kind of process. Mm. So, So I think it's not really so much about the sound, it's really much more about linear content. And, you know, the fusion thing got to be about just stationary harmonic forms. Eight bars of D minor, you know, whatever. And that there's just a lot more harmonic activity in what bebop players do. But what I'm talking about, and I think... Yeah, I, 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 know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I feel like I, I, it's not really about the Sanborn no, sound. You know, no, it's I, not that at all. It's just, it's really about, it's really about what culturally people could relate to. So... What I don't want to do is sit here and impersonate Sanborn. No, no. I, you know, no, okay. I, I really don't want to do that. Okay. I don't want to do it at some kind of impersonation. But I can give you, a, ex, you know, an example of 
what bebop playing is. I don't know if you've had any bebop players here. Sure. But, you know, I mean, just think Go ahead. about just rhythm changes, kind of, you know. That's a very good example of not only bebop playing, but also that slightly smoother, fluid sound, sax sound. Yeah. You'd hardly be honking and screaming. Okay, let's talk about the 50s guys. <laughs> the saxophone was an extremely commercial instrument on the 50s R&B records. Then sure. they started the honking thing. Well, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not really that familiar with the whole that whole school. You know, I'm just... I, mean, I can think of players like Boots Randolph, exactly, Plaz Johnson and stuff. But um, I mean, I, I just it, it, it came down the pipe along with the advent of Bill Haley, you know, and that whole rock and roll thing was really, I, I guess was the initiation of it. I mean, you know, it's, again, it's not something I'm really expert in, but um, well, for instance, it, you've given an example of rhythm changes. What if somebody said, "Okay, we've got an R and B track here." Yeah. Suddenly, you would play something very different from that. Sure. Well, you just you just play something that was static. Yeah. Harmonically speaking, goes so like uh, here we go. <laughs> It's kind of hard to play lying down. That's okay. I know. Well, <laughs> but but, it, but I can I can think more coherently. That's good. From the standpoint of chat, you know. Yes, that's good. <laughs> if you think of the songs, for instance, of Cole Porter, you know, I mean, there are tonal centers in his songs, but there's all kinds of harmonic shift going on. In all of the standards of Broadway, they're really from an era where people could play the piano, you know, knew about harmony, and the songs of today are involved sometimes no harmony at all. You know, it's just like a backbeat and a drone. And that is really a cultural phenomenon. I mean, I mean, you can get into all kinds of subjects like the lack of musical education in schools. I mean, that is a huge element in the shift away from harmonic knowledge. It doesn't make pop music any less powerful, but it definitely, all those factors really are an intrinsic part of why stuff sounds like it does, you know. Mm. You were, uh, for many years, working with somebody who's considered one of the all-time greats of jazz composition, Gil Evans. Right. Now, we've been talking about how a jazz composer writes to inspire the soloist. Now, Gil Evans most certainly did that, and you <laughs> were lucky enough to play with him. So I'd really love you to talk a little bit about your experience of doing that and how it influenced your improvising? Well, the period I, I was really around Gill was one in which he essentially had abandoned formal arranging structure. He was much more into a kind of the spontaneous environment. Whatever the players and the moment kind of would generate in a given instant, 
that's really what he enjoyed most, you know. There were song elements, you know, but there was like, there was sort of a fundamental framework for everybody to work within. But beyond that, anything really was possible. And I think he enjoyed that factor almost as much as he had done his much more sort of organized music days. So, But I think there are a lot of parallels between that period and, for instance, some of the orchestral things he did with Miles Davis, in that what he was trying to create was this a kind of tapestry over which soloists could just be themselves. Think about the Monday Night Orchestra and the way that the whole thing really was a very textural kind of experience. Complete anarchy at some sometimes, you know. But that seems to me to have a lot of parallels in, like, for instance, Sketches of Spain, where you have these, even though it's an organized backdrop, it's still, it's still the same idea, where there's just these, just one immense color behind the solace, and, and that is the, the thing that makes them inspired, possibly. Did you feel that the complete freedom that you're talking about this that that you experienced at that time was a challenge or did you just roll with it and enjoy it well it was i definitely enjoyed it but i also felt that i i really hadn't played enough music before beforehand i mean i think i really needed i i would have liked to have been in that situation now you know, having been in all kinds of environments and and just formulated a whole a level of playing that is would deal with the spontaneity of that situation. I mean, my, one of the most frustrating things, I think, was just not knowing what the hell was going to happen, you know. And I before Gil, I, I'd really only been around organized music, you know, just, just pretty set sl- slots, albeit maybe long solos or whatever, you know, but I always knew, you know, you know that's that's just the nature of how musicians like to kind of gather and organize themselves, you know, I mean, it's just, they like to know what's going to happen. But Gil was the complete opposite of that. He really, he really didn't want to know what was going to happen. He, he liked the surprise of the moment. And he also liked, you know, he, he liked soloists who really used a pretty broad stroke, you know. I mean, I just think of the people in the band when I was there, you know, George Adams and Hiram Bullock, uh, George Lewis, guys who really were more about color than they were about linear intricacies you know did you feel that it was easy it would be easy to abuse that freedom that you're given in other words well way? i i think you know people did abuse it and i mean but that was also part of the process too i mean i think he you know there are, there's some guys who bring several instruments to the band and take a series of solos on each of them you know <laughs> <laughs> and, but Gil was a guy who was just chocolate i mean it was just a i don't know it was just it just became like Amusing, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did but did, <laughs> did you feel any kind of? Uh, I'm an old fart, but you know, it, it, would you feel any obligation as I would to say, okay, I'm playing with Gil Evans, so therefore, my, since I have the choice of what I'm going to play, I'm going to try to play something that is uh, compatible with his legacy. With well, his. well, of course. I mean, that that was that. That was something that immediately struck me. Well, not only about being in his band, but just being about about being in New York. You know, I mean, I think when you come here as a musician, you I mean, you're very aware that there's some pretty sacred turf. You know, and all the things that you think think would be important are, are kind of now irrelevant. And what you really are concerned with is just 
contributing to the to legacy of the, the guys who've been there before you, you know. And I mean, w what my experience with Gil really initiated was a, you know, years and years of, of a pretty intense study. And um, I mean, I just wouldn't have felt that obligated, I don't think, in any other situation. Yeah. Do, do, have you been in uh, any other musical situations which you think shaped your development as an improviser? I think all uh, every working situation really shapes your development. I mean, I take everything I'm hired for, I really am very committed to. And they, they all have some co contributing factor, you know, in terms of development. Sure. I, I mean, I, I can't say I can't say there's any <clears throat> more important than another. You know, I mean, I've worked recently a lot with a uh, singer-songwriter by the name of Michael Franks, and he has pretty diverse spectrum of music in his you know repertoire. You know, it's really a pleasure for me to be playing all the horns that I play in a variety of different ways. I'm really being specifically attentive to what each song needs. You know, I mean, I I really get a lot from that. Sometimes you know you get a a chance in that set to um, you know, really let go, but but it's really it's mostly about okay, what is working for the song, you know, yeah. and wh how is it working with Michael's voice or, you know, what, with what the piano's doing or whatever, you know. I mean, it's, but it's all it's really about being subservient is the wrong word, but it's really just about a kind of humility and and respect for your environment, you know. I've always believed the more you demand of a musician, I mean, I believe this as a writer, the more you demand as a, of a musician, the more you get out of them. Discuss. Uh, <laughs> well, I think, you know, any conscious mu musician is going to demand the most from himself. You know, it's not... I mean, if, if you're a sort of thinking, active, studious instrumentalist, you're always going to want to do the very best you can and push yourself you know I mean I'm not sure I, I'm not sure musicians can be pushed really no no you know I, 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 mean? don't, I don't mean I, mean, it, I, I don't I, mean you know, it in I, that I just, sense I don't yeah I understand what you're saying but I feel that um, you know complicated music or just demanding technically impossible feats is necessarily going to make people ascend to a sort of more transcendent level of their musicianship I think it's really about your sort of fundamental attitude. And if you have that to begin with, then you're just going to respond to the environment no matter what. It's not, it's not really about being a dazzling virtuoso. Or it's, it's not really about that. It's just if dazzling virtuosity works for a given situation, okay, great. But if it doesn't, then you've got to do something, you know, kind of more in line with, with what else is happening, you know. I've known you for many years, and I knew you when you were very young, and I know that when you were very young, you were known as the Olympic practicer of all time. You know, you could go into the proverbial woodshed for <laughs> days. <laughs> and and I'd like you to talk a little bit about the consciousness that a, a musician gets into about learning how to practice most effectively and knowing what to practice and those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, that is a pretty, that's a pretty interesting question, actually. And, um, I mean, I thought a lot about that. And I think initially what what was driving me was the fact that I, I had come pretty late to music. In, I mean, in real terms. You know, I, I was a teenager before I really got into any kind of serious musical study. And so faced with, you know, 
life, you know, in a day job in London and a career in music, I really found that a way to kind of escape the drudgery of my life of working in a print shop was just to immerse myself in as much practice as possible. So that was the initial driving force. But <laughs> just coming to grips with the saxophone is an absolutely monumental feat. And, it, it, you know, it's just one of those instruments that needs a tremendous amount of practice. I mean, to, to, really, to really make it live. I mean, you have a lot of... One, it's one of the instruments that you really are just sort of totally physically immersed in. You know, every finger, every lungs, facial musculature, you know, is, is all involved in the saxophone. And um, it's, it's a whole lot of elements to really to, to make work, you know. And plus, I mean, sonorically, it's more, I think it's one of the harder instruments to bring to life, to make what you play live. You know, it's not like electronic or, you know, synthetic instruments where you, you're just essentially manufacturing a sound out of a box or whatever. I mean, you, all you got is, is is just you and the airstream, you know, and that somehow has got to trigger a sort of organic sound in this inanimate object. And, and now, I mean, I practice probably more now than I've ever practiced. And um, you know, I think at this point in my life, it really has become, you know, like a it's a meditation, you know, really. Because, um, I mean, just... You know, I cannot live without it. Unfortunately, I kind of, you know, I got into this situation where if I don't play, you know, when I get up, I really am, you know, at a loss as to, you know, how to get through the rest of the day. You know, so, you know, also I'm, I'm a pretty dedicated flute player, so that is also a whole other, um, that's a whole other area. That, uh, well, if you're practicing now more than you ever practiced before, you must. I mean, I'm surprised you have time to eat. <laughs> I had. I I think. When I say that, I think I, I you know, the the time I spend now is really objective and specific. And when I was much younger, it was really I was groping. I mean, I, I think, I mean, one of the drawbacks and one of the benefits about being a musician growing up in London was, it, you know, I didn't really have the environment where I could go to people for sort of objective linear analysis. You know, I mean, I just had to, you know, I was listening to records and just approximating what I thought I heard, you know, and just fooling around with the instrument, not really having any supervision, really. And that was a great advantage. It was also a great disadvantage because it meant that, I mean, I was doing a lot of stuff that, you know, I subsequently wonder years later what the hell I was doing, you know. Yeah. Well, of course, so. <laughs> you, you had no one to teach you, actually. Well, I, I had a great, I had some great teachers. Yeah. But it, it was more along the lines of um, fundamental technique and f sort of yeah. harmonic knowledge and stuff. But the, the whole American scientific analytical thing is, yeah. wasn't around then. I mean, it yeah. may be different now, but it, when yeah. I was there, it definitely yeah. wasn't. So. Well, at least I showed you upper structure tie-ins. I, I still got this piece of paper you wrote it down on. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'll send you a Do you really? I, I would love to see I that. Told, it I must be that. so funny. It's a, it's a <laughs> page from a diary. Yeah, really? wrote it on the, I keep all those, you know, all those nuggets <clears throat> of information, I keep them in an envelope because they're just so precious. I mean, I have some stuff that uh, Tim, you know, Tim Hagen's the trumpet player? He wrote out. I mean, he says... <laughs> I mean, you hear that guy play and you think... What the hell is he doing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, you know what? It's just three licks. And he wrote them, all three of them out for me. And, <laughs> and he 
said. As a she that says, anytime, any place, anywhere. You know. <laughs> three legs. Like, you know, I'm play the three legs. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Come on, yes, you can. Play the three legs. Come on. I can't. I can't. But I mean, I just have stuff like, you know, I've worked. I was around Ornette Coleman, for instance, for a little while, and he, he, I just, you know, he wrote out some some uh, homologous stuff, and I just kind of kept that. I mean, they're just sort of these precious sort of nuggets of information that that you you hold on to, I guess. You know. <laughs> well, you certainly do. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> okay, here's the deal: you show up at a pop day in in London. This was typical. Okay, and they got the lead guitarist or this vocalist has got a line. You know that he wants the horn players to play, and you know that goes somewhere. And then they want you to harmonize it. You know, and there's a, you do a couple of harmony tracks. And this, I mean, this is a general mode. You know, mo. Yeah, unless, <laughs> and, unless they and, hire me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, exactly. I mean, outside of working with you, you know, I'm talking about the you know day to day life. And uh, and then you get to the end of the day, you say, oh yeah, you know, we, we I think we we're gonna have a saxophone solo. Yeah. All right. And then, you know, you take a cell, a bus on and says, oh, yeah, okay, you know, when the song fades, why don't you play a little bit at the end, you know? And so that would be the standard format for, like, a pop overdub, you know? And it, I mean, I must have done that, you know, a few hundred times. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you did it a few hundred times. <laughs> so, that, I mean, that, that was kind of how it worked, you know? Well, you know, outside of, in the jazz environment, you, you are really there, you know, to... to indulge yourself I mean a lot in a lot in many respects you know I mean you're, you're there to I wouldn't say prove a point exactly but you're there more to establish your own identity than you are to worry about the you know requirements of other people's considerations so I mean, if you want to get a bit more into linear process you know I, I think you know improvising musicians one of the things they all, I think everybody wants to achieve is a vocabulary of their own. You know, I mean, that's something that really has been a driving force in my life and in everything I do, you know. Just just putting notes together in, in sequence that really no one has thought of before. And um, I think, you know, in bebop, people are dealing with essentially what is a diatonic scale. And, and dividing that into arpeggiated forms. But, you know, I've gotten into this whole thing of essentially what, taking what are you know, abbreviated tone rows and arpeggiating notes. And I, I actually have a, some, a sample of some stuff, if you want to hear that. But, uh, but that's really the current state of my psychotic practice routine. <laughs> I, remember when, <laughs> I, I remember when you uh, when you played on my album a few years ago. <laughs> you said to me, now, Rich, I've been getting into this rather unusual kind of melodic technique of improvising so you're going to have to just put up with it and I said well go for it big boy and it was unusual but it was great and 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 I you know it would be really great I don't know if you can do it but if you could give a little example of these little uh melodic fragments and how you utilize them because it, it does make a different sound and it does it, it is definitely a unique little thing that you came up with so if yeah. you could give an example of how well, okay, what it sounds think, like just think about I mean what it really involves for me is, is, is just kind of re reconfiguring some of the v bebop vocabulary so if you think about again just think about bird and the way they would you know the way the bebop guys would 
kind of sort of approaching their particular linear forms. You know, I'll, I'll just I'll just demonstrate some of that. You know. Sure. Okay, so that's pretty rock solid diatonic. You know, just just pretty straight ahead arpeggios and bebop passing zones. Okay, so what you know, what I'm trying to do is is use some of the same notes, but but just kind of put them together in a slightly different method. Okay. You know, it's, you see what I'm getting at? <laughs> I, I, it's just, it's just uh, anyway, that's just, <laughs> just a sample. <laughs> just, it's just, everybody's got to deal with the same 12 notes. That is the dilemma we face, you know. And uh, it's the thing is, if you just wanted to put the time in, I figure out a way of just putting them together <laughs> in a slightly more perverse manner than the last guy, you know. <laughs> well, that was beautifully perverse, Chris, and, and uh, I'm glad we got that. Hmm. Okay, that's fantastic. Yeah, great. yeah, that's okay. Radio Richard.